invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be walking through our passage from Matthew chapter 2 as we celebrate today Epiphany. We rejoice with the church throughout the world that Jesus Christ is made manifest to the nations, that his glory has been revealed, that his light invades the darkness throughout the whole world. Sadness is being turned to joy and sorrow, being turned to laughter. In the words of Samwise Gamgee, everything sad is coming untrue. Everything sad will come untrue. So the 12 days of Christmas have concluded. January 6th marks Epiphany, and we mark that season today. Jesus, the light of the world, is going out into the nations through the declaration of his victory, which is empowered by his spirit. And so as we celebrate Epiphany, we turn to that truth this day. And in so doing, would you please join me with a word of prayer? Light of the world, would you enlighten our hearts and minds to receive you in your word this day? May we shine your light to the nations as living gospels, as living sacrifices given for the life of the world. And to that end, Lord, bless now the preaching of your word that we might be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ to shine his light all of our days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a text we come back to quite frequently here, uh, marking Epiphany. It's the coming of the wise men to worship infant Jesus. And that coming was long foretold. Our Old Testament passage from Isaiah says that those from Sheba, those from Sheba will come, the east. They shall bring gold and frankincense, shall bring good news, the praises of our Lord. And this coming that was foretold anticipates a more complete coming, which Isaiah also foretells when he says that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established and all of the nations shall flow to it. When he is revealed, the mountain, the temple of the Lord, when it is revealed in its fullness of glory, the nations will flow to it. And the nations will say this, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk his paths. What we have in, gospel, in Matthew's gospel chapter 2 was foretold by Isaiah long ago. We see and celebrate this portion, this fulfillment of Epiphany. So Matthew chapter 2 beginning at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. We've got these folks hundreds of miles from Jerusalem reading There are Old Testament scriptures from God's people. So centuries before Jesus was born, God cast his people into exile. Cast them into the sea of nations of Assyria and then Babylon and and Persia. God's people were were cast throughout the sea of nations. So it's understandable that we have these uh, sage spiritual seekers living hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem They would have access to the Hebrew Scriptures. They would be well-versed in them because the Scriptures, as God's people, were saturating the nations. So when these wise men travel and they approach King Herod at his regal court to share this good news that a new king 
has been born. When they share the location, this is what Herod says in verse 5. Or what they say to him. They told him, King Herod, in Bethlehem of Judea. For it, so it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. The prophet, they quote, is Micah, contemporary to Isaiah. Micah 5.2 is probably not on our devotional cups and calendars. It's, not, it's kind of an obscure verse for us, I imagine. But to Daniel and company who were in the exile, to Esther and company as well, and all those who were taken from their land, that text holds out much hope so that the wise pagan counselors look to this prophet and this text, and it offers them hope as well. And they seek this fulfillment. They seek to bow in worship before the king who jumps from the pages of Micah 5 2 and enters our world, inhabits our earth. Uh, they, these wise men recognize that there's a new king born, and he's born in Bethlehem. The name of Bethlehem, it means the house of bread. It's maybe familiar to us from our Old Testament scriptures. It's the home of, of Naomi, uh, of Ruth and Boaz, who, of course, descend uh, there from their offspring comes King David. King David from Bethlehem. Micah promises that a true shepherd would come from this hometown of David, from this small town of Bethlehem, one who would be like a David, but truer and a better shepherd of God's people. And when this shepherd comes, the prophet Micah says, there will be security, there will be peace, and there will be strength in his government. These Gentile wise men seek this king. And they seek him in joy, and they seek true worship. At this news, they rejoice, and they seek. But at this news, not all are pleased. Chapter 2, verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. King Herod was troubled. All of Jerusalem was troubled. A new king is on the horizon. This offers a threat to King Herod. And his kingship. Christ's rule would also threaten the rulers in Jerusalem who had a firm grip on religious and civil life in that region. So we can even see in verse 3 of chapter 2, there's a shadow already hanging over this king. <clears throat> there's danger and sorrow reaching their long, unforgiving fingers, threatening to reject, threatening sorrow, threatening even death. And so verse 7 comes to us. Herod summoned the wise men secretly, <clears throat> ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent, to them, or he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. For when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. What a great plan. The king wants to bow before another king. It's a cunning plan devised by King Herod, and it fulfills Psalm 2, 1. Why? Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. The Lord's anointed has been born, and the kings of the earth set themselves against this newborn king. Jesus is also sent to his own, but his own reject him. 
danger and sorrow seem the birthright of this king. Though not all reject him, look at verse 9. After listening to King Herod, the wise men went on their way and beheld this, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them till it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly and with great joy. So as we celebrate Epiphany, we hear echoes of one of our favorite Christmas carols or hymns, that joy to the world. That's what Epiphany is all about, is joy is given to the world. Joy is for the world here, because why? The Lord has come. The light, which is the life of all humanity, has entered the world. And like wise men from the east who see it and, and follow it, they worship him. They come to worship this light. It's a strange description about a star, isn't it? We've always kind of puzzled over what's going on here. A star that seems to, to move and to highlight a, a small town, quite a particular place. We recognize whatever this sign, it's, it's, whatever this star or light is, it's a sign from God. We recognize his handiwork in ordaining such a sign. The end of the journey for the wise men has come. And their knees, which have been aching to show reverence, these knees are bent. Wise men worship. Verse 11. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Both the prophets Isaiah and Micah foretold this happening. Even the psalm that was read before us, as a coming ruler would, would enter the scene here, who will shepherd God's people in peace, the nations would then bring their wealth to him. Gold, frankincense, the best of spices, the best of metals, the priciest of incense would be given, set, or laid at the feet of this king. It's, this is the image of what we are about as we give our tithes and offerings here every week. It's the image, a vital portion of our worship service where we take what we've done, what we've been about, our energies, our vocations and work from this previous week. And we lay them before the feet of King Jesus and invite him to use these gifts, to use us for the good of his kingdom. So whatever our practice individually and as a people, whatever our practice is in giving, our passage here exhorts us to give generously to this, the King of Kings. It is a form of worship which all Christians participate in. And one day all nations will share in as well as they stream to this, the mountain of the Lord and bring their finest gifts and lay at his feet. Following Jesus certainly brings comfort and peace, and we see this celebration before the king here, but it also brings trial, which persecution is sure to follow. Verse 12, and these, for these wise men being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. They bow before the king, and they can't hardly take a breath in praise before what? They're warned that danger is at hand. A threatened King Herod is like a cornered animal. He's very dangerous. Herod intends harassment of these men, perhaps harm, lest they give him what he wants. These men who sought the rival king, rival to Herod, that is, but God warned them in a dream, and they deceive Herod, the tyrant, king. An angel or a messenger then appears to Joseph. He seems to be getting used to this. It's happened before. It happens again. 
He's being warned not to return, not to return, but to flee, to go. His warning of Herod's plots and the messenger exhorts escape. Escape. Where would you escape to? Well, where else? Egypt. Egypt? Going to escape to Egypt? Wait a minute. This is the place of captivity throughout all the history of Israel. The place of captivity is to become a place of security now? And what does that say about the city of David of Bethlehem? What does it say? But this place of security has now become a place of captivity and even death, a place to be fled as threat upon life is laid out. In verse 15, we see Matthew quoting Hosea. And when Hosea was writing, he was reminding the rebellious people of God uh, long before Jesus was born. He would, Hosea was reminding them that they said, out of Egypt I called my son. He's reminding them that God has delivered them from captivity before. And as Hosea writes to his people, his friends will soon know captivity, will soon know exile themselves. And God reminds them, I delivered you before. I'm going to deliver you again. Remember, out of Egypt I called my son. God's saying, I've delivered, I will deliver still. So Matthew employs this passage here as he sends his own son and family to Egypt, saying, out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew employs this verse at least two different ways. First is this, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, that area there. That's where God's people have been dwelling. That has become now an Egypt from which God will deliver them. It's a warning. As those who Jesus came to save reject him, it's a warning that they will soon be rejected by God. That's Matthew's first point here. Secondly, though, he's pointing us to the fact that Jesus will lead a new exodus out of bondage to sin, sickness, sorrow, and death. That Jesus will be raised up as a new Moses whom God will lead out from Egypt, who will then lead God's people. This new Moses will lead not only God's chosen people, but he will lead those outside of that. He will lead wise men, will lead all nations to himself, and in himself lead people, the nations, to God's deliverance and salvation. Now, think about what these wise men could have possibly known about this king. Very little, right? They wouldn't understand the fullness of who this child king is and would be, fully God, fully man, the savior of the world, the king of all creation, and yet they approach him rightly, don't they? Humble. They're eager. Self-sacrificing. They bow in worship. They approach this king in awe. Uh, this, too, is something we often fail to grasp, and the world fails to grasp it as well as they look in on the church and on the Christian faith. Who can fathom the joy of unhindered access to the living God, the holy presence of God? The wise men do their best with what they know, and they come humbly. They come reverently. They come to worship. And we, with so much more knowledge than they, how well do we do as we come to our King? What joy awaits in the presence of our king? But who can know it? It's hard to anticipate the joy. It's hard to feel that. It feels mundane. But there is joy set before us. And it's difficult to comprehend, to anticipate, to embrace. And if the joy is hard to embrace, how much more difficult than the sorrow? Because the sorrow seems to be woven into the fabric of following Jesus 
as well. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This is known as the slaughter of the innocents. It's known to us, and we are rightly appalled. Yet for Jesus, this event is but the first of threat and persecution, persecution marking his entire life and ministry, marking the life and ministry of all who would follow him. Infinite joy is wed together with intense sorrow for all who serve this king, for all who come to God through him. Jesus sympathizes with us because he has become one of us in the flesh. He takes on our sorrows as we share in his sorrows. And this is how it has always been for God's people. And Matthew calls our attention to it here in the next verses as he quotes Jeremiah 31. Look at uh, Matthew 2, verse 17. And this slaughter of the innocents was fulfilled, uh, <clears throat> fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the Rachel from the book of Genesis who was married to Jacob. Remember Jacob, Rachel, and all their family. They fled persecution from the nations, from Laban. And as they were fleeing back to the land, they faced persecution there as well. Sorrow met them at every turn. Perhaps from other nations there, even Jacob's older brother Esau. They seek rest in the land. But even as they seek rest in the land, sorrow follows them and is close at hand. For Rachel, in giving birth, gives up her life. She gives birth to a son, and in that childbirth she dies. Now, can you guess the town where she is buried at? It's Bethlehem, where Jacob buries his wife Rachel. He builds a memorial for her there. Bethlehem, the city of bread, the refuge for Ruth, the home for King David, the tomb for a weeping Rachel. As Rachel's life was departing her in childbirth, she named her son Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow. There was no consolation for her. She mourned until her breath failed her. Jacob does rename this child Benjamin, son of my right hand, but the sorrow remained unreconciled. And many of us can relate to a sorrow that is yet unsalved. A sadness that is unrighted, an ever-empty pit in the stomach. Jacob sets up a pillar to memorialize her life, her death, and this final sorrow. And Epiphany holds a place in our calendar as the pillar or the memorial stones over Rachel's tomb. It's a reminder that in following Jesus, we will know both blessing and famine. We will know both joy and sorrow. As the light of Jesus goes out to the nations, what will the nations find as they come to Jesus? Well, they will find his infinite joy, and they will be met with his intense sorrow. He is our king who is 
the man of sorrows. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, says this, For we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in his comfort too. This is what Epiphany reminds us of, that there is both joy and sorrow. There is both comfort and encouragement. So it was for those in Jeremiah's day, which Matthew quotes. So it was at Jesus' birth. So it was for those who Matthew writes to and for here, even for us today. We love the hymn and we sing it. Joy to the world. And as we sing that, we're actually evangelizing the world. We say, let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. We grow to understand that weeping will tarry for the night, but that joy comes in the morning. That in Jesus' coming, he will turn our sorrow into laughter, our mourning into dancing. But he leads as the man of sorrow, acquainted with grief. And so, with our lips and our lives, we bear witness to this joy and this sorrow in following Jesus. This is the mark of your life. This is the mark of my life. So many outside the church will accuse Jesus' followers of hypocrisy, of hateful judgmentalism, and too often they are correct, for we are a broken and fallen people. Many in the church are so disappointed and disenfranchised with the faults and the failures of God's people, grieved by the hurts they've suffered by brothers and sisters. And to that, our passage merely commends this fact, that the light of Christ is going to the nations. Through the witness of a broken and hurting people following Jesus. The truth that the light of Christ is going to all nations, and that the nations are flooding to this light, which again shines through broken witnesses. Though we often fail... His light will shine forth evermore. So we, the bride of Christ, do well to acknowledge our role in the sufferings we cause, in the sins we commit. We repent. We apologize to those we hurt. But we do not despair, and we do not regard Jesus' body, for we are the bride still, the bride for whom Jesus suffered, that we might taste his infinite joy if only in part now, that we might then shine that light, shine that joy to a watching world. That we might share that joy with a world which is riddled in sin and suffering. Not to mention that as the bride of Christ, individually we share in Christ's sufferings in various ways. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame. So we take up our cross daily and we follow scorning its shame. We accept both the joy and the sorrows of following Jesus Christ. And there is but one posture by which we can serve as ambassadors and worshipers of our King. And that is the posture of, we, of us approaching our King on bended knee. The light and glory of Jesus Christ is going out to the world through the light and glory of His body, who is declaring with our lips and our lives His victory over sin, over sorrow, even over death. With our lips and with our lives, we declare that sorrow will not have the last word. For at Jesus' final epiphany, all sad things will come untrue. And we will sing finally and fully, 
Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her King. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you have given us Jesus Christ, the light of the world. Though we reflect him imperfectly, would you correct that? Would you help our light to shine brightly, giving all honor, praise, and glory to Jesus Christ, that others might see our lives and give glory to you who are king now and always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.